Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. Before we get this week's proceedings underway, I have a huge, momentous, important announcement. The Deuce, the podcast I've been doing for almost two years with Jesse May Peluso, one of the all-time favorite Tully Show guests, the people's champ. You can now hear The Deuce for free wherever you pod. Wherever you are listening to this, you can also find The Deuce. We're so excited about it. We made this fancy promo. Check it out. Hi, my name is Mike Tully. Hey, I'm Jesse Mae Peluso. Together we are the hosts of The Deuce Podcast. So you just need to admit that you won't admit to being wrong in life. I think that's wrong. <laughs> Mike, if you had to describe this podcast in three words, what would it be? Me, funny one. <laughs> Do you know how many lips women have? Too many? <laughs> are you the key master? You know it, bitch. Where is the most expensive carton of eggs? Please show me to it. I'm Audrey Hepburn. Where's the eggs? Listen to us every week on Cloud 10. You heard the lady. Don't forget... Even if you do, I'll remind you again at the end of the show, The Deuce is now available for free on all major podcasting applications. So make sure you check that out. After you check this out, everything you ever wanted to know about parking, but were afraid to ask with my guest author, Henry Grabar. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from France, a journalist whose work can be read in such spaces as Slate and The Atlantic and author of a new book to which I was tipped off by a helpful Tully Show listener entitled Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Hello and welcome, Henry Grabar. Thanks for having me. Henry, when it comes to nonfiction, we live in a a golden age of micro histories. And I am personally a sucker for a good micro history. I recently had someone on the show who wrote a book about how you can sort of boil down the entire history of the world to perceptions of women's butts. And I see that there's also one that has been written about (laughs) women's breasts. Um, There is one on salt. There's one on paper. There's one on boxes. As you well know, I could go on and on. All that having been said, I did not see one coming. Uh, about parking. Can you break down your central thesis in a nutshell? How would you argue does parking explain the whole world? I appreciate that introduction, Mike. (laughs) One thing I've noticed in the reviews of this book Mm -hmm. is that reviewers will often begin with just how low their expectations were for a book about parking. Like, could you imagine a more boring subject for a book? Well, good news. It's readable. (laughs) It's not too late to add one of those as a blurb. Let me let me uh, sort of express what they're saying in a slightly different way. Is parking a more controversial subject than I'm aware of? Because you seem to treat it as such in the book. And Terry Gross, I didn't know she got fired up about anything. She is clearly fired up <laughs> about the parking in her, the city of uh, Philadelphia. Do you do you think this is generally... I don't find parking. I live in Los Angeles. It's not great, but I feel like I signed up for this. Is parking more of a hot topic than I'm aware of? Or did you know that you were kind of 
swinging for the fences with something that was a little outside of the box here? Um, I think parking is an increasingly hot topic in urban studies, urban planning, architecture, engineering, and so forth. Um, I'm going to get to that in a moment. I guess let me first try and deliver the thesis of the book to the extent that I can uh, boil it down to an elevator pitch. The idea is that we all know that car culture and the uh, mass production of the automobile and the mass uh, adoption of the automobile has changed the way America looks and feels and functions. And when we think about car culture, the pitch that I want to make with this book is that what you should actually be thinking about is the space that it requires to store all those cars. That when you think about the impact of the automobile on the American landscape, the most important part of that, the most expensive part of that, and the most, uh, geometrically speaking, the, the part that consumes the most land is parking. And so parking is actually the key to understanding the impact of the automobile on the American landscape. And and therein, we can talk about parking's impacts on uh, housing costs, on uh, stormwater flooding, on climate, on transportation patterns, of course, on American architecture, on all these different things, which when you begin to see it as uh, the footprint of a century of automobile adoption, I, I, th- I think suddenly maybe it's not such a surprise that it is such an impactful subject. Uh, but my pitch with the book is really just uh, let's just take a moment to ponder this massive system that we've never really paid any mind to. And I don't think you're alone in saying that parking has not been a priority uh, in, in terms of how you spend your time uh, thinking about things every day. I think that's that's the, the situation in which most people find themselves. And uh, unfortunately, the situation in which many city planners um, have found themselves over the last century when they uh, think about parking. I see. So you're you're in Paris right now for, I gather, some combination of uh, work and pleasure. Uh, before we get into the book, let's talk about this article of yours that you wrote on Slate about Paris and parking, et cetera, recently. So I gather the Olympics are coming in the somewhat near future to Paris. That's great for Paris. I gather, based on your article, people who travel from all over the world to come to Paris are going to find a very different city than the one they remember, even if they were there not all that long ago. I doubt the Olympics are really happening right there in the city center. But those who do venture in to see the landmarks, et cetera, are going to find a city that has become really noticeably unfriendly to cars. Is that about right? Can you explain that? That's right. I think people who have not traveled to Paris in years when they come back are quite surprised to see the extent to which cars have been ejected from many of the streets in the city core. The major east-west thoroughfare has been turned into one of the world's widest bike lanes uh, with one lane left for buses and taxis. Uh, The riverfront highway has been turned into uh, a linear park with uh, space for people to move as well as a bunch of cafes and seating areas. And just generally speaking, the city has really done a lot to reduce the place of cars um, in the center, uh, especially by, in fact, suppressing um, the amount of parking that's available at the curb. And, And the reason they're doing that is because they increasingly see automobiles as tied to um, a number of the capital's most pressing problems, among which are uh, uh, noise pollution, air pollution, and heat waves. And um, and and they think that the prior 
priority given to the automobile and public space is preventing them from making adaptations that would better prepare Paris uh, to weather these challenges going forward. So yes, the Olympics is sort of being treated around here as a, as a big gambit because the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has sort of staked her uh, reputation and her tenure on this idea that this um, multi-modality system where people use transit and use bikes and walk everywhere can be scaled up to the to the entire city. And, and the question that her detractors are posing is, is this going to work when tens of thousands of people descend on the city for the Olympic Games? And I think that's that's an open question. Well, yeah, what is your what's your best guess on that in a, a cost benefit sense? Because, you know, parking is not something that we treat as something that we want. We want parks and we want green spaces. We just sort of need parking. I'm reminded of the famous, uh, to paraphrase a Homer Simpson quote, you know, sure, all this stuff is great, but millions will be late. You know, like this, this is actually a problem. We built all those spots for a reason. Do you think at the end of the day, the average Parisian is going to feel like forsaking places for cars to park was the right move? From what I can tell, most people are broadly in favor of the changes that are taking place. They love to gripe about the process. They love to gripe about the um, amount of construction that's happening, which is certainly a pain in the butt. They like to complain about how streets that once went this way now go the other way um, and so on. But I think when you consider the what's been achieved here, it's hard to find people who are um, – or a lot of people anyway, who are really steadfastly opposed to, for example, turning the streets outside schools into these sort of miniature uh, car-free plazas, which is one of the big initiatives that they've done over the last four years. I think when people see um, public spaces like that, they say, you know what, this this is better. Um, it's a city where people often don't rely on their cars for um, the daily commute. They'll use them to you know, get out of town on the weekends or go shopping or uh, take the kids somewhere. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, this sense that the car has been prior- deprioritized, I think has been a, a goal of city planners here for, for much longer than just the last 10 years. It's just that the pace has picked up noticeably, uh, since the coronavirus crisis. Now, this has obviously involved the introduction of tons and tons of, um, bike lanes. Paris is way ahead of where Los Angeles, the city that I live in, is with uh, with bus lanes, but we're we're trying to catch up fast. I gather you you know quite a bit about those, and uh, you know I've seen studies, etc., on those. What I am finding here, as somebody who I like to bike, I own a bike, but I also have to drive more often than I am able to bike. I am seeing formerly two lane roads becoming one car, one bike, and I have to be honest, I'm not seeing bikes. And I know that there's sort of a chicken egg thing to the bike people will come once they know it's a bike friendly system. In your educated opinion, your best educated guess, is somebody going to be using these frigging bike lanes eventually? Because if not, I'm kind of bummed that we built them. In Los Angeles? Yes. Um, I, I, my experience of biking in Los Angeles is like the city would give you a nice bike lane for like eight blocks. And then suddenly you find yourself turned into eight lanes of roaring 45 mile an hour traffic. Yeah. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked when we think about bike lane construction in U.S. cities is that it seems like um, the proponents of bike lanes argue naturally for, for building out this infrastructure and they'll take what they can get. But the opponents, uh, meanwhile, seem to characterize any single lane that's been uh, created 
as the entire network being uh, the entire street network being handed over to the cyclist, when in reality, it remains, in my opinion, as a cyclist, pretty woefully incomplete. Mm-hmm. And I think the test that you ought to apply is uh, how many journeys can be made entirely in protected bike lanes? Is it are these trips that you would feel comfortable making with a, you know, eight year old behind you on a bicycle? And if the answer is no, then I think the the, the network isn't really doing its job. And so I think in a lot of places, you know, you look at Brooklyn, for example, which ought to be one of the most bikeable places in the United States. Well, the longest and largest protected bike lanes in Brooklyn were both built in the 19th century, like more than 100 years ago. And and it seems like, you know, the effort to adapt cities has been actually so piecemeal and so half-hearted that I, I do think you see a lot of bike infrastructure that's going unused because it's part of a system that doesn't really make sense. It's not cohesive. Yeah, I was in Brooklyn on <clears throat> on Sunday, and a complaint that I heard more than once from locals there was not about bikes, but about scooters, Vespas, e-bikes, etc., and where there's always been this bit of a dance of where New York has cars, but it's a pedestrian city. And so if you're going to cross the street, the cars kind of just need to to know. And obviously you're taking your life in your own hands. But the, the local custom, the local habit is that if there's space for you to go, you go and cars don't kill you. Mopeds are sort of in a gray area between the two of who ought not not what's right in terms of the law, but who tends to feel entitled to go and 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 when there's a clash of assumptions there then accidents are going to happen and i spent a tiny little bit of time in bali and the touristy parts of bali are not a model that people should want to emulate elsewhere in the world where there there does seem to be a lot of hazard and i would assume there are a lot of accidents between cars you know the 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 e-bikes just introduce a third element to already a, a fairly fraught situation and it seems like I mean, Paris, I'm assuming, has got quite a bit of those as well. Can you just talk about the the element that they add to the already fairly fraught stew of humans trying to get around cities? Yeah, that is no less of a contentious issue in Paris than it is in New York. Um, and I think both cities, you know, to some extent, uh, I think both cities are just dealing with the fact that the presence of so many cyclists is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so as a pedestrian, you do need to adjust your approach when you're thinking about crossing the street, for example. And in places that have robust cultures of people riding bikes, like say Shanghai or Amsterdam, you go to those places and um, cities uh, the, the people in those cities actually do just become accustomed to the way that cyclists are going to move. And it just becomes a part of the way you anticipate people moving through the urban environment. Um, so I think part of it is just everyone needs to just adjust to the way these places are changing. But then with respect to the e-bikes in particular, um, the thing that's happened in New York, and I think this is true in Paris as well, uh, is that a lot of the demand for e-bikes is driven by people ordering food. And uh it's often, I feel like, the same people who are ordering food through these apps uh, that employ these workers who are like, you know, whose schedule is schedule and, and pay is determined by these algorithms that make them do every delivery faster and faster and faster. That's what's driven the mass adoption of e-bikes in New York City. So I feel like if people actually wanted to solve this issue, the solution would be to really um, decrease the amount of food delivery that's happening in the city. But that's not a conversation people want to have. They sort of want to have their cake and 
have it delivered to them too. Well said. Uh, let's talk about the book Paved Paradise. Um, in the uh, preface or introduction, you write, whoever said life was about the journey and the destination never had to look for a place to park. Well done, Henry. That's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, some people may be listening to this and thinking that we're focusing, we're focusing primarily on uh, a city problem that only affects city people, but you argue that this is an across-the-board issue in America, Canada, and lots of other places. Here in America, we have a, uh, a national housing shortage, and I, from what I read online, I gather the same goes for the people who are listening to this in uh, Canada. Can you explain in a nutshell how parking um, is tied to housing and how it therefore inflates perhaps unnecessarily the cost of where people live or where they might like to live? I think there are two components of this. The first is that most jurisdictions in both the United States and Canada and many other places around the world require parking as part of the zoning code. So when you build a new building, no matter what kind of building it is, but this is true for most types of housing, from apartment buildings to single family homes, um, it is required to come with a certain number of parking spaces. And those parking spaces cost a lot of money to build, and they take up a lot of space. And uh, those two things both have consequences for the types of housing that gets built. If, In particular, if you're trying to build something uh, really low margin, uh, aimed at a kind of, uh, you know, not aimed at a, at a luxury clientele, uh, then including all that parking can often um, really take a, really put a lot of pressure on your bottom line. In, in the study of affordable housing projects in California and Arizona, for example, um, a federal review found that required parking in structured garages adds 25 to 30% onto the cost of every new building. So that is a lot of money that's being spent on parking that is preventing us from building more affordable housing because every one of those parking spaces could have instead been apartments, right? Now, of course, people need to park, but a lot of that parking ends up going unused. And that's the tragedy of it, right? That we are so uh, afraid of a parking shortage that we've required all these buildings to build more parking than they'll ever need. And as a result, uh, we've made it quite expensive to build affordable housing. And more than that, We've also outlawed um, through these parking requirements a lot of the infill building types that characterized American cities in the early half of the 20th century. I'm thinking of things like bungalow courts or fourplexes in Los Angeles or brownstones in Brooklyn or uh, triple deckers in Boston or three flats in Chicago. Like all these vernacular housing types are impossible to build under the contemporary parking requirements that exist in a lot of cities. So those two issues are really important. And then the third one is that parking just functions as a uh, a limit in people's imagination uh, about how many neighbors they can have. I think it's as simple as that, that uh, when we think about increasing density and we think about whether we want new, new families living on the block, new neighbors living down the street, uh, our primary concern is not often about uh, classroom overcrowding or crime or uh, there being too many people in line at the bakery, it's about the challenge that those new neighbors will pose to our on-street parking, the on-street parking that we think of as ours because we came to the neighborhood first. And in that way, parking really is a limit, I think, on people's imagination in terms of how they conceptualize the possibility of their neighborhood changing to accommodate new neighbors. I think you said at the top of the show that parking is or can be argued to be the most expensive element of uh, car 
culture in general. I, I believe it's said in the book. I wrote this down. You know, I've had a crazy last couple of days. I made notes on a plane. I don't trust anything I wrote yesterday. Did you really write that it can cost $100,000 for every stall of new parking in a structured parking lot? Yeah, that, that, that can be. How can, uh, that, that, possi- can, how can that, that possibly be true? Even if you get a Tesla a- charger in there. That that uh, the most recent project that I saw that that clocked in at a hundred thousand a stall was a commuter garage at the Metro North uh, commuter rail station in Stamford, Connecticut. So, um, <laughs> but I've seen similar estimates uh, in and around Seattle, in and around Philadelphia. These are mostly for public projects, in part because it's just easier to find uh, the data because it's all public, obviously. Um, but uh, but underground parking certainly can 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 run to six figures in major cities. And I, it is shocking, right? Because on the one hand, it's like this unfinished raw space. And on the other, obviously, our willingness to pay for it is relatively low. Few of us would want to drop $100,000 on a parking space. Um, but once it gets bundled into the cost of the apartments, you don't really see it. Uh, for what it is, right? It just becomes part of part of the cost of that that unit that you're buying, and you as the buyer were never really given a choice. Do you want to add a hundred thousand dollar or more likely two thirty forty fifty thousand dollars surcharge onto your apartment for these two parking spaces? That's that's staggering. Um, you mentioned um, a minute ago how much of the the classic city features that we you know embrace about our great cities would be impossible under current law you didn't even touch on i don't think like the classic downtown like any any the good part of any city that anybody wants to visit you basically can't replicate a bunch of buildings that just touch each other without you know a, a parking structure well i guess you could if you were able to build these sorts of um uh, underground structures you were just talking about. That's staggering. I hadn't thought about that. The, the the classics, I'm a city person. The classic downtown is effectively impossible to recreate. Those are archaic um, uh, neighborhoods under the current laws that exist just about everywhere, right? Yeah, they are. And people say, I think people have this perception that like, oh, well, just build more parking. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get, uh, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that Parking is so expensive that for, for example, a classic Main Street development, they're just not going to build a 12-space underground garage excavated down to two levels with two, uh, two you know, concrete ramps and all that. It's just, it's going to break the project. And so when you require that much parking, what you're essentially requiring is that most of the lot be parking by surface area, right? And so I think when you drive around a post-war American commercial strip, you will notice that most of the buildings are surrounded by parking lots. And some of that is market demand at work. It's landlords and uh, commercial tenants saying, we want to make sure that our customers have enough space to park. But a lot of it is driven by the law. It's the law ensuring that there will never be not enough space for everyone to park who wants a parking space. And as a result, what you get are these urban environments that are characterized by parking lots separating each building from the next one. And the tragic irony of it is that those environments become all of a sudden very challenging to navigate on foot by bike. They are at such a low density that they're not really well served by mass transit. And so just the fact of requiring the parking in the end forces people to drive. 
Yeah, let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> mass transit. That seems like the elephant in the room here. To me, parking is not the cause, but the effect. If I can't take effective mass transit, I mean, Los Angeles is making a lot of strides, but generally speaking, Los Angeles has always been a place where you can't take the train. Therefore, you drive. Therefore, they actually do need the parking spots. Therefore, you have the sprawl. Therefore, there goes any chance that I might actually decide to walk or, or bike there. Why is it when it seems like everything in the world has gotten bigger, better, faster, cheaper, more efficient, etc., why were they able to build subways like a hundred years ago? And I remember this it, this gigantic comical struggle to get like a three stop train done on the east side of Manhattan that they were talking about for my you know my whole entire life. And then you know, there was the the big they finally did get it done, but there's the big dig in in Boston. Why? In, you know, a lot of places, it's just too late. The place is what it is. But it didn't have to be this way. Why was making subways everywhere such a mission impossible? This is such a good question. I think, like, people are now starting to study this issue. But I think a lot of mass transit advocates, including local politicians in places like Los Angeles, have been reluctant to draw attention to the enormous cost of building new mass transit because they feel like the deck is already stacked against new mass transit projects because the auto lobby is so powerful that if we even admit that there is a problem here, then we are opening ourselves up to a world in which all these transit projects just get canceled. But I would argue that by trying to figure out and if by, first of all, admitting that we have a transit cost construction problem, we can get ourselves to a place where hopefully we can figure it out. And then once we figure it out, we can take the money that we're spending on mass transit and we'll be getting, we ought to be getting two, three, four times as much uh, track, uh, as many stations um, as we're getting now. And if you look at Americans, uh, America's cost compared to a place like France or um, Italy or pretty much anywhere else in the world, we are we are simply off the charge in how much money we spend building things. Why is that? Um, I think it's partly because the American public sector is pretty hollowed out. There aren't a lot of experts in city and state and uh, even the federal government who have this kind of experience building these kinds of systems. And practice makes perfect. And so cities and states and countries that have been doing this stuff over and over and over again for the last few decades uh, are just better at it, right? And I think you see this with the California High-Speed Rail Project. It was a great idea. We insisted on doing it ourselves instead of uh, letting, for example, the French National Railway Company uh, just do it. And uh, as a result, we find ourselves with, uh, you know, what are we now, 15 years later and and how much of the track is, is complete? Uh, and we've spent how many billions of dollars? I mean, it is, again, it, it's a tragedy. It's it's awful. It's just a slow motion car crash. And of course it will be. It's something that perhaps could have been done properly, but, and so many people argued against it. Now that it is being done improperly, it will not only be a failure in and of itself, but it'll be held up as further proof that, that this, this sort of thing can't be done anymore when it actually could have been done. And and the, the amount of money is almost hard to really fathom that we're throwing into trains that I live here. I, nobody is using them and nobody is going to use them. Um, right. I do want to stress sure, here that yeah. in Los Angeles, there is this really bizarre situation where on the one hand, the County has invested billions of dollars in, for example, creating new subways. And on the other hand, there is this p total political refusal to build new housing 
next to all the infrastructure that's been created. I mean, I've ridden the Expo line from the west side to downtown, and this is one of your like flagship transit investments, mm-hmm. and it is going through a terrain composed of Levittown style 1950s single family homes. And it's just, well, I'm sorry, but nobody's going to ride the transit unless you build lots of big apartment buildings next to the next to the train lines. And I feel like in in that case, L.A. is is a little behind the ball. This is true on the gold line on the east side as well. Yeah, I, I, I live uh, along the Expo line. They, they are throwing up lots and lots of uh, very, very expensive uh, apartments. I mean, we also have the added issue that a lot of um, trains here become de facto homeless shelters. But that's that's a whole that's a whole other another thing. another problem. Yes. Right. That's a completely unrelated problem that all of a sudden is very, very, very related. It's another as if the uh, L.A. mass transit system needed another gigantic obstacle to success. There is that. Um, let's just bounce around a little bit with your book uh, and uh, just some facts that I kind of found fun that I was hoping you might um, explain or expound upon a little bit. I was shocked to learn that New York City gives offers, I guess any vendor who gets enough parking tickets, a volume discount on illegal parking. <laughs> this is this is true. If you get enough tickets, if you're a corporation, you can actually get like 30% off. Is there there any other arena of American life where if you sufficiently break the law, the penalty gets reduced because you just broke it so many times? I mean, some people would argue that, yeah, you you don't want to break. You don't want to be a little person breaking little laws. If you're going to break laws, you want to be an upper echelon, you know, high value member of society because there are two different (laughs) sets of of rules. But I I mean – so, so what, you, you mentioned companies like, uh, you know, shipping companies, the UPSs, the FedExes. At a certain point, the drivers have no choice. They double park. They, they kind of know they're going to, you know, sometimes they'll get away with it. Sometimes they don't. But just one of those real, real high level uh, vendors that's a, a real high volume offender. What are their, what do their annual parking fines look like at a corporate level? I do not have access to the um, corporate finances of, you know, your fresh directs and your UPSs, they don't, they don't break out their parking violations and their earnings reports. But um, I can tell you that on an individual level, it's typical for a box truck in a big downtown like Boston or New York or Washington or San Francisco to rack up tens of thousands of dollars in parking violations every year. And <laughs> that is, it, that, that's a massive expense. And it tells us a few different things. Number one, that's just the times they got caught, right? Sure, of course. <laughs> so yeah. that just tells you the degree of illegal parking, the way in which illegal parking has become part of doing business. Um, and illegal parking is, I know everybody hates getting parking tickets, but uh, the double parking that those delivery vans do has a lot of externalities. Um, first and foremost, it creates a ton of traffic behind it. A lot of traffic congestion is being caused by all these double parked cars. And uh, one of the curious things about the fact that cities make so many so much money from fines, in fact, more money from parking fines than from uh, the actual money that goes into meters themselves, is that it seems like they don't really have an incentive to create loading zones and get those double park delivery cars out of the moving lanes and onto the curb. And the reason they don't do that, I hate to say it, but I think it's because they make just so much money ticketing these guys. And, uh, and 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 the, the traffic that results from all these double parked cars to them, um, you know, that has enormous costs, too. But they're not neat dollar costs 
that drop uh, that you know drop out of the municipal budget at the end of the year, in, in the same way that those parking violations to those frequent offenders uh, drop in. Right, it becomes a time tax on the rest of us who are trying to drive or even bike around those scenarios. time tax, and also pollution. I mean, like all kinds of uh, negative externalities caused by traffic, and and looking for parking is a major source of traffic. So if you as many cities do, if you take this sort of laissez-faire approach to what happens on the curb, because everybody loves free parking at the curb, you are essentially ensuring that there will be a parking shortage, that you will have double parked cars, you will have illegally parked cars, you will have people circling the block over and over again looking for parking. And that is what happens when you don't charge for parking. That That is what uh, you know the parking professor Don Shoup calls the high cost of free parking. Uh, just uh, by the by, what do you think of the idea of um, scaled parking tickets or maybe even other sorts of traffic infractions tied to one's um, declared income? Because it I mean, I, I've seen it in when I was when I was a kid and I mean, it was not just me when I was a kid. There are plenty of people for whom a sixty five dollar parking ticket affects what their family eats that week. And then there's plenty of other people for whom it's a reasonable uh, financial gambit to go, eh, I'm just going to park here. And if I get the ticket, so what? I mean, I don't want to get one every day, but I don't really care if I get one per week. If 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 uh, parking tickets are such a significant source of tax revenue for cities, why can that conversation not get off the ground? I'm under the impression there are some countries in the world, I want to say vaguely Scandinavian in my mind, where people can get proportional speeding and parking tickets, but I've never even had that heard that conversation in the mainstream public sphere here in America. It's a great, it's, it's a great idea. I, I think there would be implementing. It seems um, complicated, no but I think the, maybe the broader point we could make is that um, is, which is related to this, this, this system where cities don't create loading zones for vans. And so the vans double park. And so the cities get to collect tens of thousands of dollars in parking fines um, is that cities view parking as a source of revenue. They view their parking policy as how can we take in as much money from possible, excuse me, how can we take in as much money uh, as possible from the system that we're building here? And I think that is a terrible mistake. And the way they should be thinking about it is how can we maximize access to the curb? And how can we keep the system running as smoothly as possible for as many people as possible? And that is a calculus that leads you to a different conclusion about how to run the system. I think one of the reasons parking fines are so high and that parking violations feel unjust and do indeed trap people in cycles of debt, court appearances, uh, additional fees when you can't pay. I mean, there are cases of parking violations being a very deliberate part of what the DOJ called in Ferguson, Missouri, a revenue-driven policing strategy. And that's terrible. And one of the reasons that happens is because the enforcement is so spotty that um, that cities do need to create high fines in order to create a deterrent effect. It's sort of like a speeding ticket, right? How many times when you're speeding do you actually get caught? Like one in a hundred trips, one in a thousand trips? Um, and as a result, the speeding ticket does need to come with some serious penalties to try and create a deterrent effect. And I think with parking tickets, we do have the technology actually to create a different kind of enforcement system where enforcement is more um, uh, more reliable 
but less punitive. And I think that would be the kind of system that I would argue for uh, we should move towards, right? That, you know, a parking ticket shouldn't be that much different than the money you'd pay at the meter. The point is just to make sure that people pay and to encourage them to park their cars in a way that corresponds to how badly they they need that that parking space. And what I mean by that is um, you got to organize the curb. I mean, this is the most important thing. This is why the parking meter was invented, was to preserve those high value curb spaces for people who need to make deliveries, who are stopping by for a couple hours, for half an hour, right? Those are the people who need the spaces directly in front of the stores and businesses. And the employees who are going to be parking all day, you really need them to park further away. And that is what the system should be designed to produce. And there's no reason that you know a $65 parking ticket uh, needs to be uh, part of that. Yeah, you actually just touched on the next thing I I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, You say in the book that an Oklahoma City newspaper editor is actually effectively the inventor of the parking meter. Uh, My question, I always knew when when I've had jobs, it was understood we were not allowed to, to park in the best parking spaces. We were the help and we needed to park far away and, and hoof <laughs> it. apparently this was just not something that uh, applied to, I mean, occurred to the small business owners of downtown Oklahoma City, I gather. I think it can be hard to enforce. I think every, um, well, first of all, the boss sometimes wants to park in front. But yeah. then after that, you know, you're in an urban environment. Is the boss really going to know if you parked like, in front of a store, front of a block. Yeah, okay, block. fair enough. You're right, you're right. So you're right. I agree that, you know, ideally everybody would use their head and the more time they wanted to park for, the further they would park from the busiest strip of downtown. And that would be okay because the five minute, 10 minute walk to their car would be amortized over the course of the eight hours for which they would be parked and for which they would be present. But the reality is human nature is uh, is not so not so good as that. And many people show up first thing in the morning uh, if they're working in these stores when all the spots are available and they take the best spots. And then when you show up uh, four hours later to to get lunch, there's there's nothing available. And so that is the system that the parking meter is designed to solve. And it actually it often doesn't even take very much money in terms of the meter fee. Uh, to get people to sort themselves in terms of their parking habits by how long they plan to be there. Yeah, especially the old ones. If you actually need to put real change in it, nobody's going to stick around. I mean, my dad's got quarters, but he's a dying breed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right, right. The whole jug of quarters in the glove compartment. Right. Um, before I let you go, let me just uh, touch on a article that you uh, recently wrote for The Atlantic about the future of um, the, the presumed switch, nationwide switch to uh, primarily people driving electric cars and the ramifications that is going to have, particularly in regard to people powering those cars when they are away from home. Big picture bird's eye question on that for starters now that it seems like the switch from uh gas powered cars to electric cars is inevitable uh and too late to turn back the clock on here in the states are we sure that was actually the right way to go now i full disclosure i have a a tesla i'm not really a big car person it was just fun it was affordable it was something different yeah, I looked it up and I saw supposedly LA uses a pretty good amount of renewable energy. So I thought I was doing my little part for the environment, but I just, I bought it because it was fun. I'm certainly not. And I was not an evangelist, um, an evangelist for Elon Musk, even before he did his, his public heel turn. But somebody um, recently made a, a good point that really stuck with me, 
we're still largely talking about something that relies on fossil fuels. And so we're switching from, you know, because we, we still get so much of our energy from from coal. There might be better things around the corner that are truly renewable, you know, truly green. Do you feel like, let's say in 2040, when everybody's driving an electric car, we're all going to say, boy, I'm glad we did this or boy, we should have waited for X to come along. Oh, it's a tough question. I mean, transportation is the country's largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the our interest in getting people onto electric vehicles and in um, is, I think, pretty urgent. And I actually think the composition of the grid is changing faster than expected away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. Um, my concern is more with the local level consequences, because I think there's a sense that um, first of all, there's a sense that we are only beginning to reckon with the harms of local pollution caused by a century of automobile exhaust. I'm thinking, well, obviously both about the carbon emissions, but particularly about local particulate pollution on busy roads. You look at the studies on children's test scores on health outcomes for stuff as varied as Alzheimer's, stroke, whatever, everything, basically, the more automobile exhaust you're exposed to, the worse your health outcomes are. And um, that is not going to be solved by the adoption of electric cars, because a lot of pollution in cities caused by cars comes from brake dust, comes from dust from the road that's stirred up by vehicles passing. And EVs are heavier than uh, than gas-powered cars. And so they're going to result, obviously, in no tailpipe emissions, which is great news, uh, but they are still going to create a lot of local pollution. And so I think when we think about how to adapt society to lower our carbon footprint, I think the all-in emphasis on EVs is, um, I hope it doesn't foreclose also focusing on how to reduce the amount of driving we do as a society. You were talking about mass transit a moment ago, but I actually think the broader issue is simply getting people into neighborhoods where there's a great deal of walkable amenities at their disposal. Most trips in big U.S. metro areas are under three miles. It's a distance that could be done on foot, on a bike, in some small electric vehicle like a golf cart if we made the streets safe enough for people to do that. And if we allowed neighborhoods to grow and to accommodate enough new neighbors to patronize those shops and restaurants that are within easy uh, easy distance. So I think that's a change that really ought to be prioritized, um, both for, you know, just because it's those are the best places for new people to live if we don't want them to spend their whole lives driving like they would if they uh, moved in out to San Bernardino or Riverside or something like that. Uh, but also because um, that's that that's ultimately the best thing for for the climate and, and for traffic, because that just means uh, that many fewer people driving on a daily basis. The Atlantic article focused mainly on building um, lots of chargers in in public spaces. This um, this sort of like the bike lane thing. This strikes me as a, sort of a, a, a chicken and egg thing. There's lots of people. You don't build the chargers because a bunch of people have electric cars. People who are driving gas cars who are unsure about whether or not they want to make the switch need to sort of visually notice the ubiquity and easy access to chargers before they go, okay, okay, I used to know there was a gas station every third corner. I see all these chargers. I know I'm going to be able to charge. 
But what that means is we need to build a ton of very expensive chargers now for which demand does not currently exist and which, let's face it, is not 100% guaranteed will ever exist. Is that about right? Well, I think it will exist. I mean, it is a chicken and egg question. The demand won't exist unless you build the chargers because people won't buy the vehicles unless the chargers are there. Right. But the situation is very reminiscent of the parking question in the last century. Nobody wants to pay for parking. And and so and so the government basically took it upon itself to require all this parking. Uh, to make up for the fact that if you left it up to people and their own devices, they they just simply wouldn't want to pay uh, the amount of money that's required to build a new parking space. And I think you're seeing that with chargers as well. Um, when it comes to public chargers, uh, no one's going to uh, drop, you know, 10,000 bucks to like dig up the curb in front of their house to install some some fancy new charger. Obviously, it's cheaper, much cheaper if you're doing it in your home garage. But, you know, one in three U.S. households doesn't have access to a private home garage. And so as a result, what's happening is cities are taking this on. They're building curbside parking, uh, curbside charging and curbside parking spaces. And it's costing an enormous amount. And it's just one more way in which even local government right now is subsidizing car use when, to my mind, they could be focusing on alternatives. So this is a uh, to, to wrap things up here a real big picture uh, question to which I'm sure there is no easy answer. But when I talk to authors or journalists who've written about you know focused on one issue, I feel like it, at the end of the day, in regard to their subject and its uh, its evolution, it either ends with them going, "Yeah, man," and uh, that's it. The oceans are just screwed, you know, <laughs> and there's this very, very pessimistic note to the end of it. I feel like I kind of sense from you uh, a, a, a certain note of optimism that the sorts of changes that you think ought to happen in the world in regard to city planning and specifically to parking either are happening or it's still possible that they might in a foreseeable future. Am, am I picking up what you're throwing down? I think that's accurate. Um, you know, when I started writing the book, I thought one of the things that motivated me to write this book was seeing how in many cities, real estate prices could be so high. Um, and yet, if you wanted to park your curb, uh, excuse me, if you want to park your car at the curb, it was free. And you see people taking advantage of this arbitrage in California, where lots of people live in their cars because rent is expensive and parking is free. And um, I feel like we got another realization of this weird uh, dynamic during the pandemic when restaurants opened all that curbside seating in the parking spaces. And it was clear that like, okay, this is space that we've been charging, uh, you know, maybe a dollar an hour, maybe $2 an hour for, but turns out that if you were to open it up to different uses, people would pay a lot more for it. And the sales tax that was generated by those restaurant seating areas was enormous. I mean, many, many times uh, what had previously been contributed from, from the meters. And so um, I think that there is a realization underway. Uh, and I do feel optimistic about that. I think the, the, you know, the part that's challenging is obviously uh, many, many people in this country drive and are dependent on their cars. And to make these changes is going to ultimately yield a city in which more and more people feel comfortable going around without their cars, even in a place like Los Angeles. But 
Before we get there, there are going to be moments along the way where you're looking for a parking space and you can't find one and you get frustrated. And we just need to be able to ride out that intermediary period to get to to the place we want to get to, where we have more and more neighborhoods um, that are walkable, uh, that are, you know, where where, where parking is, is a little bit less of a third rail issue than it is right now. Well, with a sane and patient electorate like the one that we have in America, I'm sure we'll have no trouble just enduring a little bit of growing <laughs> pains to get to the the better life on the other side. Henry, you've uh, been very generous in giving me a lot of time on Zoom when you could be walking around Paris, so I appreciate that. I'm going to let you go. Um, I'll remind everybody, your book is entitled Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Thank you, Henry Grabar. Thanks for having me. Well, friends, that was the show. It was good for me. I hope it was good for you, too. Before I send you on your way, one last reminder. Wherever you are listening to this, you can also find The Deuce. Subscribe, rate, review, enjoy. Thanks for listening to that. Thanks for listening to this. I look forward to seeing you here, there, or somewhere else sometime soon.